Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. In September 2019, if you can remember that far back, I know you do. I started a series in Zechariah. You guys remember that sermon, right? What? What do you? Yeah, anyway. Um, started preaching through Zechariah and uh, kind of stopped and started back in February 2020, then stopped and started again and, and finished uh, chapter 6 in June of 2020, which... Um, just, you know, the last couple of years have been kind of wild years. And so we're getting back into our series in Zechariah, at least for um, a couple months maybe. And uh, wanted just to give you a brief reminder before we get into our passage what Zechariah is about. You might remember in the Old Testament, the people of God had trouble with idolatry. They would worship almost any other God but the one true God. Or they would worship him alongside these other false gods. And God said, you need to stop it or there's going to be trouble. And he continually told them through prophets and through famine and through different things that he is the one true God. He is the only one who deserves worship and the rest needs to be cut out. They refused to listen. And so Babylon came in and took them captive for 70 years. They came into Jerusalem, raised the city to the ground, and took the people of God back to Babylon into slavery for 70 years. They call that a generation. It's just about what they call that. And then we, I preached through Ezra and Nehemiah. You might remember that. Again, you know, a long time ago. But In Nehemiah's day, he was led by God to come back and and rebuild the city. They they rebuilt the walls and gave the city an identity again. And Ezra came and he began to rebuild the temple to start worship again. But when Ezra started the project of rebuilding the temple, the people of God came together. The enemy came to stop them. And they stopped the project for nearly 16 years, where the temple of God, the foundation was laid, but the rest laid in ruins. And so God sent the prophet Haggai and Zechariah and said, why is my house laying in ruins while your houses are all being built? And so the people began to work again. They began the process of building up and the, the prophecies that Zechariah had preached to, to start this project again were these eight visions that we encountered in the first six chapters. And now we encounter in chapter seven, time has passed, and now there is something new happening. So let's look in Zechariah seven. Zechariah is two books to the left of the New Testament. If you're in Matthew, go backwards two books, Malachi, Zechariah, and you will find the book there. And in chapter 7, we're going to read the first seven verses today, and here's what the Word of God says. In the fourth year of King Darius, the Word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day, 
of the ninth month, which is Chelslev. Now the town of Bethel sent Sharezer and Regimelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I've done these many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat and do you not eat for yourself and do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? I'm going to stop there. Let's pray over this passage this morning. God, I thank you for your word. And God, I pray today that you would shine a light in our heart where each of us would examine our, our worship of you. God, we want to be people that was described in our songs today. People with a heart for worship. People who could say, oh, worship the King, oh, glorious above, and gratefully sing his wonderful love. God, I pray that you would speak to us today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to think about something today. I'd like you to think about it deeply and honestly. In the silence of your heart right now, I want you to think about this question. Why do you worship Jesus? Why do you worship Jesus? When you got up this morning, you washed up, you got dressed, you made your way to this building, why did you come today? Did you come because you missed your friends? Did you come because there was nothing better to do on a Sunday? Did you come because someone made you a spouse or a parent or, or a friend? Or did you come because there was a burning desire within you to worship the one true God who sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins and purchase a place in heaven for us so that we could be forgiven and restored to him? Why do you worship? Our worship is greater than what we do here on Sunday morning. I want to acknowledge that. But why do you come on Sunday morning and hear the singing, hear the prayers, hear the word of God read, hear a sermon? Why do you worship? This question is the question that Zechariah posed to his people of the day. That is what this passage is about. And this message is as important today as it was then. As we examine our passage in Zechariah today, let's see if God can reveal our motives to us. And, and, and it will help us to kind of get the dating of what, what is surrounding this passage. I gave some of it in the beginning. But it says at the very First verse, there was the fourth day of the ninth month of the fourth year of Darius. That means on our calendar, it would have been December 7th, 518 B.C. That was the day. And what we know about this, it means it has been two years since Zechariah finished his eight visions. And the people started working on the temple again, and they started rebuilding. They've had two years where the temple was starting to come together, and walls were coming up, and, and things were getting built. 
And then we know from history it would be two more years before the temple is finished. So we are halfway through the building of the temple right here. We're halfway done. And the people of God, so they've been rebuilding the temple. And at, you know, they let it set fallow for 16, 18 years. And, and now they've started rebuilding and they're halfway done. People are walking down the street and they see um, a new wall come up. And the new facets on the top, or, or they start seeing thing, the rubble cleared up. You know, we, we drive by an a, a empty lot one day, and the next day there's six houses there, right? We see these projects coming. And this is what they're doing. They look at what is going on in the temple, and they're excited. Their dream is coming true. We can begin worship again soon the way God intended But halfway through restoring this project, restoring the temple, God has another word for them through Zechariah. And it's prompted by an incident here. The focus of the people had been on the temple. The temple's getting rebuilt. We can start worshiping. But God then shines a light so that they can examine their practice and their motives. And so that's what we're going to look about today. So the first point we see here is God is calling them to examine their practice. Look in verse 1 through 3 again. And just look at what is being asked here. It says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chiselv. And now the town of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regimelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, and here's the question, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I've done these many years? The question comes from those who live outside of Jerusalem. And they've come to Jerusalem hearing that the temple is being restored. And they say, when they talk about abstaining, they're talking about fasting. They said, do I still have to fast? Now, they wanted to know if they continued the fasts that were not commanded by God. Here's the deal. In the Old Testament, God commanded, God commanded one time for fasting. And that was on the Day of Atonement. On the day when the priest would take the, the lamb's blood into the Holy of Holies to cover the, the people's sin with the blood of the lamb, he said the people of God should be so grieved and, 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 and just uh, sadness over their sin that they need to stop they're eating for a day. So he asked them, he commanded them to feast. But it was the only time God commanded that a feast was done. It was on the 10th day of the 7th month, the Day of Atonement. We know it today as Yom Kippur. Now there was other times people fasted. We might remember Esther and telling people, hey, you need to fast and pray because I'm going to go to the king and see if I can save the people. There were different times when people would fast. But the only time God commanded a fast was on the Day of Atonement. But ever since the people were exiled to Babylon, they added other fasts. There were other fasts that the people had incorporated into their worship. And here's the deal. They were mandatory. They were not commanded by God, but these fasts entered into their life. And after 70, 80, 90 years, it was something you had to do if you were going to be a good Jewish person. If you were going to be in right relationship with God, you needed to do these fasts, the people said even though it wasn't something commanded by God. 
they started these fasts as a way to commemorate tragedy, a way to remember what had happened in, in the people of God's life. So it was, it was remembering the tragic loss of their freedom and of Jerusalem and of the temple. But they became empty rituals. Now specifically, what these people are asking about are four fasts that were incorporated into the lives of people after the fall of Babylon. And they represent these four fasts, four events that we read of in 2 Kings 25. We're not going to turn there, but you might write it down if you're interested. 2 Kings 25. So on the Jewish calendar, the fourth month, which corresponds to our June and July, they fasted to mourn the capture of the city by Nebuchadnezzar. Now I'm going to tell these calendar-wise, not in order of the event, because if you read through it, these aren't the events are in different order than what I'm giving it, but I'm giving it by the order. If you were a good Jewish person in Zechariah's time, on the fourth month you would fast because the city was captured by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylons. That was found in 2 Kings 25, 3 and 4. In the fifth month, that corresponds to our July and August, they fasted to remember when Nebuchadnezzar set fire to the, to the temple. And destroyed the temple. They burnt the whole city, but it was, it was about the temple. We read that in 2 Kings 25, 8 through 10. On the seventh month, that corresponds to our September and October, they, fast, they fasted to, to commemorate or, or remember, to remember the assassination of their last leader and 80 other leaders at the time. Nebuchadnezzar came in and he wiped out the leadership and they mourned over that. We read about that in 2 Kings 25, 25. Jeremiah 41, 1 through 10 also speaks about that for those who want to do the Bible study later. And then in the 10th month, that corresponds to December and January, they fasted to remember the day that Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem. And that's 2 Kings 25, verse 1. That was the first thing that happened, but it, they celebrated it the last of the month because that's when it happened. My point is there was these four fasts that they incorporated into their lives. God didn't command it. So when the people lost their city, they lost their rulers, they lost the temple, and they lost their freedom, they mourned, and they were grieved. And anyone who's done any kind of grieving knows that most of the time you lose your appetite when you're grieving. They were so grieved they couldn't eat and so they fasted. Knowing that the reason all this happened was their idolatry. And so initially these aren't bad things. People fasted and they recognized and they remembered. And the next year when they were in Babylon they remembered again. And 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, people just started doing it. We're supposed to fast in the fourth month. Why? Huh? We're just supposed to. Or else you're not a good believer in God. So look at the timeline here. This is the ninth month they came to talk. They've already fasted three times this year. And they look around and they say, Jerusalem's rebuilt. The walls are rebuilt. The temple is halfway done. We've got Zerubbabel as governor. We've got Joshua as high priest. The leadership's back. We've got our freedom again. Why do I need to fast? And it's a good question. I think it's a good question that comes from a wrong heart. Why fast over stuff that's no longer an issue? Will I still be a good Jew and not fast on these days? I mean, fasting's not fun, and so if I can get away with not fasting and still being good with God, I want to do that. The question is, what's the minimal amount I can do and still be in good with God? And that question's kind of off in all kinds of ways. It's not about doing. It's about being. 
All this discussions about man-made rituals. Human made up the fast. They institutionalized them. And for close to 100 years, people participated in these fasts. And if they didn't do them, they were criticized and thought of as less than someone else. Because they were a ritual. They had to be done. It's something you just do when you come to church, so to speak. And these human routines became ritualistic and they became habits. And now they wanted to do less. And as we search our hearts and ask the question, how should we worship? When we examine our worship, we should begin by examining our practice. I mean, most of what we do is really man-made. It really is. I tell you, Jesus didn't wear a jacket. I'm just saying. Right? Pretty sure. But if I came up in robes and a sandal, I'm not sure what you guys would do. Come with my bathrobe and sandals on. I'm just, you know, I'm just messing. A lot of this stuff is, is what we do. Now, I mean, it's, it's okay we have a building. It's, it's okay because what we worship is not the stuff, it's Christ. The question is, what is our worship centered on? Are we more concerned about the practice of the rituals and satisfying our preferences, or is our worship centered on God? Is our worship centered on God, centered on the Savior, and and all of that is developed and known from the word that he gave us? What is our worship about? I receive emails from people asking about our church on a regular basis. Um, They might be people visiting town, you know, they're out of town and they're traveling through. We love that. We love it when people come and visit from out of town. And we have people who, on a regular basis, when they, they visit here every year and they come and visit every year, we love to see those people. I get, I get uh, um, emails from people who are moving to town and they want some place to call home, and, and I love those. A couple years ago, I received an email from someone new to town looking for a church. And, and in seeking a place to worship they wanted to worship the one true creator, and I'm assuming, you know, develop a relationship with the creator and sustainer of life. Find some place they could integrate into a body of believers that would hold them accountable, and they could serve and reach out to the community. Now, they didn't say this, but if you're looking for a church, I'm going to assume that's what you're looking for. And they had one question they wanted to know about our church. The question was not about our view of the Trinity. And what we believe about God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, and how they're three in one. The question was not about what we believe about God, I mean, what we believe about the Bible, or what we believe about sin and salvation, what we believe about heaven or hell. That wasn't the question. The question wasn't about how we can reach out to our community and whether or not we do that or not or how we develop a strategy. What is our strategy to reach the lost? There was one question critical to this person's spiritual growth. The question was, do you sing hymns? Here is the email. Now, I wouldn't share this, but I just felt I needed to. It says, can you please describe your style of worship. This was the only question. Is it predominantly hymns or modern choruses? Although many churches say they have a variety, I'm trying to find out if your church has all hymns, almost all hymns, a hymn here or there, or whether you just don't sing hymns. That was their critical question that was essential to their growth in their relationship with the Lord. And I'm saying that question is off. So I responded in a nice way. I didn't blast this person. I described the singing portion of our worship service. That's not worship. I mean, it is worship, but it's not all worship. I described that our whole worship service includes singing and praying and reading the Bible and hearing a sermon. I mean, gathering together in Bible study. You know, there's, there's worship that we do here together. There's worship we do out in, in, our, in our private time. 
I talked about how we're a welcoming church and, you know, we, we love people and, and, and want to welcome people. And I told them, I gave an honest description of our worship service. And I did not hear back from that person. As far as I can tell, they never visited. Now, I know many of you like hymns, and I'm not condemning that. I like hymns, grew up with hymns, know most of them by heart. You like what you like, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem. The preeminence, not of Christ, but the preeminence of our preference in worship. These people said, I don't like fasting. I want to stop it. Is there a way for me to get out of it? See, that's all about them. It wasn't... It wasn't about not grieving sin or grieving sin. It was what they preferred. See, I didn't hear in this email, I, what, I heard in this email not a desire to connect with a group where God is calling and moving. You know, God's not, if God's calling them there or not. I did not hear a desire to grow in their relationship with Jesus. I did not hear a desire to find a place where God's going to use them to reach this community. I did hear, I want a place where my preferences will be satisfied. That's not worship. Well, it is worship. It's worship of me. I want a place where I can worship in a manner that I think is best in ways I will want to have. I want more of an entertainment experience that will please me than a worship experience where God is honored, God is glorified, and I am transformed from the inside out. That's worship. Is your worship centered on man-made rituals and personal preferences? If you examined your worship, could it be described as attempting to do the absolute minimum and still stay in good with God? Let me ask you this. If your worship of Jesus, is your worship of Jesus confined to Sunday morning? Or is there a lifestyle of worship? The question that is asked here is simply this, is what we do really for the Lord? Is our worship me-centered or is our worship God-centered? The people in Zechariah Day were seeking to find the minimal amount they could do so that they could be pleased in their worship because fasting isn't fun. So they're like, I'd like it better, so can I cut this out? Is our practice of worship God-centered? So after this examination, it's something we should examine ourselves and and see what our practice of worship is. But is our practice of worship God-centered? And then God asks them some questions here that essentially teach us that we need to examine our motives for worship. So we examine our practice, and then we also examine our motives. Not only what we do, But probably the more important question is why we do what we do. In a series of rhetorical questions, God asks these men, well, he tells Zechariah to ask these men three questions. And they're penetrating hard questions when we look at them. And it's worth our time to examine examine ourselves along as we examine these men. And so the first question God asked Zechariah was, were the fasts for me? Were they fasting for God? Look what he asks in verse 5. He says, say to the people of the land and to the priest, when you fast and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? He says, for 70 years, did you do it for you or did you do it for me? It's a simple question. It's a tough question. It takes serious examination. 
God's asking them to evaluate their motives. Why were they fasting? Were they fasting because they were overcome with the sin of idolatry and grieved that they had to be in slavery for seven, 70 years? Grieved that they let the, the, the temple lay fallow for 18 years or, or 16 years, whatever the, the time frame was? Or, or, were, they, were they grieved over that? Or were they fasting for them? So they could say, they could take their spiritual check boxes and say, fourth month fasted, check. Seventh month, check. Tenth month, check. Look how good of a person I am. I've done all the check boxes. Who are you doing it for? God asks. Were they fasting because they lost their city, lost their leaders, lost their temple, lost their freedom? Or were they fasting to, to manipulate God into doing something for them? Because a lot of times that's what we use fasting for. We're like, I'll pray because I want something. And if it's not happening, I'll fast and then God will have to do what I ask because I'm fasting. Fasting's not arm-twisting God. It's grieving over the situation. Were they fasting for God or for themselves? It should stir us and stop us to really think, is your worship about God or about you? When we gather on Sunday morning, sorry guys, need to ask the question, are you more concerned about the song choices than hearing a word from the Lord? It's a valid examination of self. Are your religious habits things that you like to do instead of things God has directed you to do? It's worth considering. The tone of the question that's asked here that we find in Zechariah indicates that if they were honest, and they, they would acknowledge that their worship was for themselves. That their fasting, their motives was self. Then God asks them another question. He asks, were the feasts for me? He asks first, are the fasts for me? Then he says, are the, were the feasts for me? Look in verse 7. When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? And do you not drink for yourselves? See, there were certain times in the year that God said, you need to feast. You need to, you need to really recognize what God has done and celebrate him. And so there were different times where they were to eat and drink, not just to indulge their flesh and have a party, but to celebrate and worship the Lord for all the good things he's given them. The feasts were supposed to be a time where they stopped and acknowledged God as the harvester, the provider, the giver of all good things, and to celebrate that. But when the times of the feast came around, they observed the day. No one, no one likes a barbecue better than these people, right? They would barbecue a, a bull or something. I don't know. And they would party, but they would forget the reasoning why they were celebrating. And we don't have to look anywhere further than Thanksgiving Day to understand what's going on here. I mean, Thanksgiving Day... You know, late in November, there's people going to gather and they're going to eat like it's their last meal, right? Okay, is that just me or is that, is that everybody, right? There is this thing that's laid out and we eat and people might gather family around and they'll tell each other why they're thankful for each other, which is a nice thing, but that is not the purpose of Thanksgiving. And I'm not trying to rail on Thanksgiving, I just want you to see the correlation. Okay? I just want you to see the correlation here. The day of Thanksgiving was not set aside to thank our family what they have done for us. It's fine to thank people. We should thank them throughout the year, not once a year. But that's not what Thanksgiving was for. Abraham Lincoln in 1863, he looked at this nation that was embroiled in civil war. And he said, you know what? We might be at war, but we're at peace with all other nations. And he looked and he saw that the harvest was still coming in and people still had food. 
And he looked at the mines and saw that the mines had, had iron and, and, and gold and coal and stuff coming out of the ground, all the good stuff. And he saw that our, our country's borders were expanding. And he saw the population increasing. And he knew that the war would soon be over and freedom would be given to more people. There'd be more freedom in the country. And he looked at all that was going on and he said, we need to thank God for what he is doing in this country. And so he thanked God and he acknowledged God in his thanksgiving proclamation. I'm going to read part of that. Listen to that. It's a little bit longer quote, but listen to to his thanksgiving proclamation. No human counsel hath devised or hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. He said, men didn't do this. It was God who accomplished this. He says, they are great, they are the gracious gifts of the most high God who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Thanksgiving was a day to remember the goodness of God. The creator and provider and all that he has given us. It's a day we're to set aside and thank him. Abraham Lincoln set aside really a holy day. And today it's celebrated as a holiday. Now my point here isn't to destroy what anyone's doing on Thanksgiving Day. I'm saying that mindset was what was going on here in Zechariah's day. God said, have a feast at the Passover, the Day of Unleavened Bread, there was a week-long feast type thing. And they were doing it, but they forgot why. They loved eating that roast lamb. That was good stuff. But forgot God had freed them from slavery. And it's a meal about Thanksgiving. The people were taking the day, they were celebrating, but they were taking the day off and partying for the right now instead of stopping the work and concentrating on the faithful work of God over the years. God's telling them, look, when you ate and drank and had these feasts, it wasn't for me, so why do, would you think that the, fa- the fast that you were doing were for me? That's the, that's the point of these two questions side by side. He said, were the fast for me? You weren't eating for me, so why, stop, why would stop eating be for me? It's all about you, God is saying, and it needs not be. The fast were focused on self, the feasts were focused on self, and then God reminds them in verse 7, and asks them this final rhetorical question. He essentially says, Weren't you warned about this? (laughs) Didn't I already tell you this isn't right? Look in verse 7. Aren't, are, are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited, you know, before the The Babylon exile, Jerusalem was prosperous and it filled so much it spilled over into the surrounding lands and people, it was just a great place to be. And it was in those times he said, you better make your worship about me. And then they went into exile for 70 years and they forgot it again. And he's telling them, 
I've warned you about this. This is exactly what the prophets tried to warn them about. God was trying to always drive it into their heads and and maybe more accurately drive it into their hearts that he was the only one to be worshipped. Not false gods, not ourself, but him. And this is a lesson they heard over and over again. Isaiah, before the Babylonian exile, at the beginning of his book, which is his book, 66, books, 66 chapters long. So it's a, it's a long book. He had a lot to say. And at the very beginning of that book, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, listen what he says about their feasts and their sacrifices and their fasting This is God speaking. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And so he tells them, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your evil deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. It's a powerful, sobering passage where God says, I don't want religious exercise. I want obedience. I don't want the sacrifice that comes along with sin. I want holiness. And he calls us to that. Make yourself clean. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The question is this. Can we live all week long neglecting people? And then come into church and expect to have a wonderful worship experience. Can we go through the week and treat people harshly and ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit and show up on Sunday, expect to truly have a wonderful worship time? Do we think we can live for ourselves all week and then show up Sunday for worship and expect a powerful experience from the Lord? And Isaiah tells us, don't count on it. I want to be crystal clear, though. Our examining of our worship does not lead us to do more. If we think that if I examine my worship, that means I've got to do more. I've got to come to church more often. I've got to pray more. I've got to read my Bible more. I've got to do more, do more, do more. It's all about me and what I can do. If that is the result of examination, it is going the wrong direction. That will lead to empty ritualism. It'll lead to legalism. And that's spoken there in these verses. What I'm talking about is a heart level worship. And it all speaks about our motive. God's always concerned about our motives. He's more concerned about why we do what we do than what we do. He's concerned about what we do, but our motives are greater.
when, when King Saul decided to rebel against God and act as a priest in the Old Testament, God told him through the prophet of Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And the answer, rhetorically, is no. The empty sacrifices, the ritual of offerings, does God please with that more than obeying the Lord? No, he is not more pleased. He wants obedience. And it says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. So in our natural state, we will think we can earn God's love. In our natural state, we think we can go through the motions of religion, we can check off the right boxes, and in the end, God is obligated to accept me because of all that I have done. But that's not the truth. We've been programmed if we go to church more. God will bless us more. If we do more church stuff, I'll get in better with God than he's forced to do what's good for me. If I fast, I'll arm twist God in doing what I want. He'll love me more. He'll bless me more. I'll earn my salvation. But Galatians 2.16 says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. We are only saved because Jesus took our place 2,000 years ago. He went to the cross and shed his blood in our place. We are saved because God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were stuck in the muck and mire of our sin and we had no way out on our own, Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. He took our sin and took the wrath of God in our place so that we could receive the righteousness of God in Christ. That's why we worship. Not about what we do, what we like, what is best for me, we worship when we focus on the Lord. That's what worship is about. I'm going to have you bow your heads. And I'd like you just to think through this. I'd like you to think through the question, why do I worship? Is God speaking to you about that today? Is your definition of a good day at Sunday when we sing all the songs that I like? Because that's not necessarily a good definition of worship. Nothing wrong with those songs. Do we spend our week living for self and then expect on Sunday morning a powerful experience of God and disappointed when we don't encounter it? What is your practice of worship? What is your motive of worship? Heavenly Father, you know I don't, even, I don't have this down. There are days and weeks I live for me when I want my life to be for you. God, I suppose everyone here has a life marked in such a manner. But God, we so desire to give you the worship that you, desi that you deserve. And we glorify you in a way 
that you deserve. And so God, as we think of the act of worship, it's more than singing. It's more than coming to a building on Sunday morning. God, I pray that you would make us people who are known to be worshipers of you. And then God, I pray that you would use us to go and make more worshipers of you, to, to bring the gospel to those who don't, need, to, who don't know it and then be brought into your family and become worshipers of you so you gain more and more worshipers. Someone has said missions exist because worship doesn't. God, we pray for the day when the end of all things, every believer is standing before you in heaven singing, worthy is the lamb to receive glory and power and honor and strength and worship. And, and God, we sing and worship you forever. We long for that day, but for now, God, we live in this world where temptation is all around us. We live in a world that's broken with sin. We are broken with sin. And those who have trusted in Christ have been restored to you, but we still struggle. And so, God, speak to us today. Help us examine our practice and our motives so that our worship will be more and more pleasing to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.